It's Tuesday, January 9th, 2024. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Donald Trump's a generally interesting cat in the way car crashes are interesting or how Dr. Pimple Popper is an internet phenomenon. But to be fair, for a politician, he is a lot more interesting than your average Millard Fillmore, Dan Rostenkowski. But just because the name Trump is in the headline doesn't immediately make the rest of the story terribly compelling. Take, for instance, the Trump immunity appeal. CNN went with special coverage of the Trump immunity appeal featuring Trump's lawyer, Harvey Firestein slash Sherrod Brown impersonator D. John Sauer. However, if you look at the indictment in this case, nothing that's alleged against President Trump could remotely be described as ministerial. I'm not aware the government has ever argued that if you're talking about, you know, responding to widespread allegations of fraud, abuse and and, uh, uh, and misfeasance in a presidential election, trying to find how to respond to that in a manner that's in the national interest. The justices of the D.C. court seem to sour each time sour, crepitated with another questionable argument. But that's all fine. It was of importance, some interest. To me, but I'm a freaking nerd. This is not interesting to the vast majority of CNN's potential audience. The ultimate decision will be interesting, but the ultimate decision is highly unlikely to reside with this court. It will be appealed to the Supreme Court, and there the august justices will ponder the terribly vexing question of, could Donald Trump shoot a man on Fifth Avenue and get away with it? There's a strong, strong side for sure. Why not, of course? Then, once they decide on that, head scratcher. They could possibly weigh in on the legal doctrine of, did a big strong guy once come up to Trump crying saying, Mr. President, Mr. President. These are all very tough questions that it will take years of scholarship to master. But that is all for a different day. Far be it for me to tell CNN how to program its day. Hell, I have a podcast and I didn't just lead with Trump immunity appeal. I led with a critique of the coverage of Trump's immunity appeal. But at least My analysis cannot be overturned by Ginny Thomas's husband. On the show today, they searched water and discovered not just microplastics, but even smaller particles called nanoplastics that are just as deadly, which is to say, possibly not at all deadly. I'll explain how our knowledge of nanoplastics might seem bad, but not knowing might be, you thought I was going to say worse, I'm not, and that is the point of the spiel. And a programming note, our interview with the author of 50 Fascinating Facts about Millard Fillmore has been canceled. I don't understand why. But what we do have is part two of our interview with The Wall Street Journal's Yaroslav Trofimov, Russian corruption, stalemate, possibly, drone warfare, all on the table and the battlefield. The author of Our Enemies Will Vanish, the Russian Invasion and Ukraine's War of Independence, Yaroslav Trofimov, up next. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. 
because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort, and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Yesterday, Russian forces hit Ukraine with a missile supplied by North Korea, say the Ukrainians. That's a first. The German Chancellor, Olaf Scholz, has reiterated, i.e. not a first, meaning he either badgered or berated, depending on the headline, the rest of the EU, into giving Ukraine the aid it needs. On now to discuss the latest developments and the backstory of the conflict, we are joined once more by Yaroslav Trofimov whose new book is Our Enemies Will Vanish, The Russian Invasion and Ukraine's War of Independence. We pick up with the topic of Russian corruption. I talked to some experts in the beginning of the war or near the beginning, and they were saying that corruption was so rampant within the Russian system and so many contractors would just through graft or theft essentially uh, steal what amounted to, and they weren't sure what the multiplier was, but they basically said, however many tanks you think they have, cut it by a third. However much artillery you have, cut it by a half to a third, because it was just all stolen. Has Russia become less corrupt? Is that less of a problem now that there's an actual war? I think it's become less corrupt in the sense that there are much, much harsher penalties for corruption. People are more afraid. And, you know, you have seen a whole series of Russian military industry officials being either imprisoned or just falling out of windows mysteriously. Yeah, uh, always the fourth floor window. Yeah, well, sometimes third, sometimes seventh. But uh, <laughs> but we also still have the old problem of the Russian hierarchy is that the bad news don't get reported up the chain of command. And so uh, the generals at the very higher levels still very often have this incorrect picture of the battlefield. Uh that forces them to make mistakes that the Ukrainians are exploiting. Whereas in Ukraine, uh, there is a lot more delegation to the uh, you know, operational commanders, the sort of concept of mission control on which NATO militaries are based. In Basically, sort of the commander-in-chief sets up the overall objective and leaves the operational initiative and sort of the freedom of how to execute it to the person who is actually commanding in the field that has much better picture of the of the environment <clears throat> that's really what helped ukraine survive in the first first weeks of the war when all the communications were haywire and so that that makes it easier for the ukrainians to fight and that but that's a, the trait that can only work in societies that are democratic and open and that have trust as opposed to fear as the foundation of the social contract compare the quality of the russian soldier 
to the Ukrainian soldier now? Because I would think in the beginning of the war, uh, all the best uh, fighters were used and so many of them were killed. And so each force must have been degraded. And usually we talk about numbers and we could get to that. But just tell me about the quality of the fighters. I think you're absolutely correct. So basically the professional Russian military and the professional Ukrainian military were not decimated, were much worse. And they, they, right, they, decimated they, means cut by a tenth, yeah. Yeah, they were the, I mean, the vast majority of them are either dead or injured. And so uh, there's a lot of newcomers, but not a lot of skills, often not a lot of motivation as well, because pretty much everybody who wanted to fight uh, on both sides uh, did go to fight uh, in the first year of the war. So now in both countries, you have you know, basically a draft, right? People are being yeah. mobilized and sent, sent to war. Not a lot of volunteers on either side. That in part explains the high casualty numbers because there's lots of untrained people. And then the Ukrainian, if you look at the Ukrainian uh, recruitment, so in Russia, they have the prisoners. So a large part of the disposable units uh, are prisoners. Ukraine doesn't do that. <laughs> there's... If you look at the social sort of makeup of the people you see in the front lines, especially outside the sort of ideologically driven volunteer battalions, uh, it's a lot of middle-aged people in late 40s, 50s. A lot of them come from small towns or villages where it's much easier to recruit. I mean, much easier to force people into the military. <clears throat> and the government so far has been trying not to touch big cities too much. You know, not a lot of young people in Kiev have, have gone to fight with except for those who volunteered. Why is that? Um, I think in part is because uh, there are concerns about this causing social unrest, in part because so much of the economy depends on you know, high earners in big cities. But I think also, I've heard from a lot of Ukrainians sort of saying in, in, in the 50s and late 40s saying, it's better if I go and fight, then my son was 25, who still has to have children. So there's a lot of, and this 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 translates writ large to the society. So the Ukrainian state is trying to spare the lives of you know the, the people in the young twenties who still have to, make, to have a family and to. It's 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 almost as a sort of nation protection project. But it's also an inversion of the normal course of things. You would normally get the younger people who are more physically fit to volunteer, but I guess just like in America or a lot of Western countries, there's this huge urban provincial divide and the uh, people from the provinces are in some way more expendable. Yeah. I mean, there's another element also because everyone uh, sort of who's 50 and older has uh, served in the Soviet army. Yes, that's true. And so if you want to find people who know how to drive a tank or fire a howitzer, they're probably more likely to be, you know, 55 than 25. Yeah. The kids these days without their, without their history of service. Yeah. So I do want to ask you, you spend a lot of time with uh, fighting units and obviously you don't pick up a gun, but let's take, there are scenes where you're a, definitely not, you work for the Wall Street Journal, it could right. never happen. You are on reconnaissance missions. 
when you're with um in a in, with a fighting force, let's say mm-hmm. you're not in a safe situation, but they're going forward. They're engaged in the exchange of armed fire. They're in a more dangerous situation than you are. You can do whatever you need to hold back. When you're on a recon mission where you're looking out for tripwires, whoever you're with is more experienced in that. You're, in fact, more vulnerable in a lot of ways on these missions. I'm just wondering about factoring that in as well. Yeah, you're always, I mean, I mean obviously I'm, I'm more vulnerable because I, I don't know, the train. I don't have a weapon to protect myself. And, uh, you know, we have long stopped wearing, you know, this bright blue press, you know, body armor. Because it just yeah. makes you into a target. So, you know, we would wear something, you know, dark and drab and kind of black and looking military-ish uh, without being military. And just because you don't want to distinguish yourself from the rest of, you know, the four or five or six guys you're going with. Uh, I mean, the moment they see you someone special, that's the moment when the sniper will pick you up. <laughs> so, um, but that's a trade-off that these units also want to make because they understand the importance of telling the story. They understand that the more their campaign is explained, both on the overall level, but also as it pertains to that particular unit, the more support they get both politically, but also directly, you know, people hear about them, donate to buy drones for them and body armor and, you know, night vision and all that stuff. <clears throat> and so, uh, and then you just have built relationships. I do want to bring it up to close to the present. So in between the time the book went to press or was even in my hands and now much has happened. I think the conventional wisdom, you can correct me if I'm wrong, was that trenches were dug and we had reached a period, and this was true, there wasn't too much territory gained for a long, long time. And I think the conventional wisdom was that the war had settled into a period where this would be the reality for a while. Um, let's stop there. Is Was that what the military experts were saying well i think i think the conventional wisdom which is still true i think for now uh, is that the technological change proliferation of cheap drones observation systems uh, make it very very hard for the conventional military thrust the sort of combined arms warfare maneuver as they call it in the u.s military this column of tanks to break through the enemy lines and you know have the rapid advance. The Ukrainians tried it in the summer, failed. The Russians tried it earlier in the year, uh, and they tried it again in, in the last couple of months, also failed. So the front line hasn't really moved, except a couple of miles here and there, uh, for you know, a year and almost four months now, since November 2022. And so as long as the Ukrainians still have enough ammunition, uh, that's probably going to remain the case for the foreseeable future. Without U.S. funding, uh, is there a risk that the Ukrainians won't have enough ammunition? Well, U.S. is critical, uh, obviously, both in terms of funding and actual ammunition. So, I mean, the U.S. probably provides less than half of aid to Ukraine in terms of uh, dollar value. I mean, most, I mean, more than half is now coming from the EU and uh, Britain. But uh, in terms of actual military gear, just Europe doesn't have the capacity, doesn't have the stockpiles, doesn't have the production capacity. Obviously, the Europeans can buy from the Americans. But 
it will be very, very hard for the Ukrainians to hold the line. And, and that doesn't mean the line will not be held. It means that a lot more Ukrainians will die doing it. Yeah. I'm sure you read the uh, Washington Post two-part series where they essentially pitted the opinions of the U.S. military against the Ukrainian military and did a uh, analysis of what went wrong or why the Ukrainian uh, counteroffensive was unsuccessful. And there are a couple big headlines. One is that the Ukrainians wanted more time to train. But another, and this seems fundamental, is that the Ukrainians wanted to attack on three fronts and the United States said, no, just concentrate on one front. The Ukrainians ran the assault they wanted and it was unsuccessful. So you get into the situation where maybe it's now America Americans trying to um, retroactively say we were right or to escape criticism. There's a lot of motivations going on, but I just want your assessment. You're an expert of what you read, what was new to you, and what seemed the best actual analysis or explanation for why the uh, why the counteroffensive failed. Well, I think the biggest reason why it failed was a year too late. I mean, all that stuff, if it were given to Ukrainians a year earlier would have ended the war, probably. But then, you know, the U.S. government and the German government and other governments were afraid of Russian nuclear threats. So I think that's fundamental. And now there were tactical mistakes made by the Ukrainians. There was bad advice from the U.S. as well. You know, I think the sort of blame game about the tactics is of secondary importance. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the Russian military was underestimated. If you, when I talk to Ukrainian commanders, I mean, there was also this realization that there was this fetish on American of American training of NATO doctrine, and so new brigades were formed and trained in Germany and Europe by American and other other NATO officers, and they were training things that the U.S. military does, but that the Ukrainian military doesn't, and they were not trained in some of the things that the Ukrainian military does. Uh, that is very advanced, more advanced than what the U.S. military. For example, in the Ukrainian army, you know, we have drone operations down to squad levels. Everyone has drones. It's, it's integral to any operation. In the Ukrainian military, uh, you have this battle management systems on phones and uh, uh, <coughs> iPads that unite everyone through Starlink. And so, you know, it, uh, uh, every platoon and officer knows exactly who's where. where there's, there's, an, there's this sort of Uber-like system for calling artillery fire, where all the drones feed their, their signal to this gallery, and then an artillery officer somewhere nearby could just connect with the drone operator and say, can I permission to fire any target? So there are all these things that are actually used that they were not taught. So these new brigades were formed. They didn't have any combat experience together. They were giving all the best toys, all the best tanks, all the best equipment, and sent them to battle and failed because mm -hmm. they were not trained enough. And that was a political decision, eh, because the other option would be to take the old battle-hardened brigades and give them, you know, this new equipment, and maybe send the new ones to to, to less <coughs> less critical area. But anyways, it's you know mistakes are made at worse. Do you think the uh, debate between three points of attack versus one was determinative in the outcome? No, I don't think so. The, I think the entire premise of being able to break through these huge Russian minefields and fortifications yeah. without an air force, without adequate defenses against uh, these helicopter gunships, 
that could fire missiles at tanks from a distance exceeding the distance, uh, the sort of the range of the uh, of stingers and other uh, portable air defenses. Uh, it was flawed. Mm-hmm. I mean, this entire kind of operation is pretty much impossible with the current balance of technology. So then is the strategy necessarily to play for a draw? It must be at this point. What strategy for whom? For the Ukrainians. It's the best they have. It's the best they could hope for. Um, well, the strategy for Russia is to go for a full victory, right? I mean, they, Putin, right. Doesn't, yes. Putin doesn't want to settle. Putin said very clearly that you know, Odessa is a Russian city. His you know, predecessor, Dmitry Medvedev, who's the head of Putin's party, says Kiev is a Russian city. And I just said it in December. So uh, Putin hopes that the Western is all the flag, that the uh, military and, and non-military aid for Ukraine will dry up. You know, Ukrainian society will start you know, collapsing uh, with, with internal strife. And you know, then maybe President Trump is back in office and Ukraine is cut off and he wins. So if Russia still hopes for total victory, that Ukraine's game here is to prevent that. Is it a draw? Is it another draw? Will Putin die one day? Will Russia implode? Who knows? You know, Russia is also paying a heavy price for this war. Many Russians are dying every day. And the Russian economy is, is taking a toll from that. The best and the brightest brains have fled Russia, not to be mobilized and sent to die in Ukraine. <laughs> so it's hard to predict the long-term impact of this on Russia as well. Yeah. But, but Ukraine's best hope probably is not a clear battlefield victory but the implosion of the Russian society or military. Right. Okay. So what I'm hearing from you is not so much a difference in how much you think, how much land you think the Ukrainians can gain back, but in really the definition of what a draw is. Stop the Russians. You're saying the Ukrainians can continue to stop the Russian advance and make the Russians pay costs and then perhaps Putin dies or the economy craters or... Um, there's public discontent over how much was actually gained. But you're also not saying that you, you don't think it's truly possible for the Ukrainians to, you know, gain back uh, most of Crimea, say. Well, I mean, clearly not in the next few months. I mean, I think this year is going to be a year of defense for Ukraine. I, mean, I think the goal for Ukraine this year is to try to prevent Russia from taking any significant cities and just basically imposing costs on Russia and, and killing as many Russian soldiers as, as they can and destroying as many Russian tanks and planes and ships as they can. Uh, and, and preparing for a counteroffensive one day when the Russians are sufficiently exhausted, if that happens. Yaroslav Trofimov is the chief foreign affairs correspondent for the Wall Street Journal. Uh, the last two years, he's been a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in international reporting. His latest book is Our Enemies Will Vanish, The Russian Invasion and Ukraine's War of Independence. Thank you so much. Thank you. Great to be on the show. And now the spiel. CBS Channel 2 Chicago has an important health message that you and your family won't want to miss. 
may want to think twice before reaching for that plastic water bottle. A new study found one liter of bottled water contains hundreds of thousands of nanoplastics. That's according to researchers from Columbia University. Nanoplastics are tiny, untraceable particles that can cause health issues like GI disorders, birth defects, even death. Wow. In 18 seconds, we went from the gentle recommendation, you might want to stop the slurping, to death. Death. Also, if nanoparticles are untraceable, how do you count them? Huh? Columbia researchers, how? Columbia research scientist Najin Chin here explains. This box is the to host the two laser beams. Okay, I can't quite tell you exactly how they counted. There were laser beams involved, apparently, but they did count, and here's what they found. I'll read from the AP write-up. Looking at five samples each of three common bottled water brands, researchers found particle levels that range from 110,000 to 400,000 per liter, averaging around 240,000, according to a study in Monday's Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Penis. Previous studies, the AP once more reporting, have looked at slightly bigger microplastics that range from the visible five millimeters, about a fifth of an inch, to one micron. About 10 to 100 times more nanoplastics than microplastics were discovered in bottled water, the study found. Okay, then does some math. There are 25,000 microns in an inch. They compare it to hair. You got to compare it to hair. But this means there are 5,000 microns in a quarter of an inch. I don't want to confuse everyone with all the conversions, but when they measured the thing that they could see years ago, which are microplastics, they found a lot of microplastics. Now, through the lasers, they found a way to search for nanoplastics, which are even smaller. And I will, quoting again the AP, they found 10 to 100 times more nanoplastics than microplastics in bottled water. But a nanoplastic is 1,000th the size of a microplastic. So did they actually find more plastic? Or were they able to just look at smaller pieces and get us all freaked out? They definitely got us all freaked out. Time Magazine headline, microplastics in bottled water, 10 times worse than thought. No, they're just able to find plastic 10 times smaller. And certainly they found some more, but not 10 times more. We can see the smaller plastic. Once more, I'm deferring to the Columbia researchers thanks to the laser beams. Now, it could mean, though none of this in any of the write-ups make it clear, it could mean there's a lot more plastic, but I'm pretty sure that all they found was that if once you get the microscopes or the laser beams, you do get some more plastic, but you just get better at looking at smaller pieces of plastic. And there certainly are tinier pieces of plastic than we knew how to look for. But, you know, maybe 10 times is justifiable because I went back and read the original study and there is some stuff there that would indicate that maybe you could get to 10 times worse. But Newsweek, always in competition with time, blew past that. Chemist-worn bottled water 100 times worse for plastic than thought. CBS News also went with the 100 times worse. Many others did too. CBS wrote, the researchers found 110,000 to 300 70,000 particles in each liter. According to the study, about 90% of the particles were nanoplastics, while the rest were microplastics. In fact, the original paper does indicate that 90% of the amount 
of plastic they found is nanoplastic. But that is different from saying 90% of the particles. Again, if you take a microplastic, smash it, so it becomes entirely nanoplastics, you have a thousand times the original amount of plastic. Basically, being able to look at smaller bits means you're able to up the count, but there also is, I do think, more plastic than we'd previously thought. But none of this really tells us what we need to know. I can make an analogy to meat, red meat. Eating too much red meat is generally bad for us, colorectal cancer and all that. And this is a fact, the average person in the United States consumes 82 pounds of beef every year. But guess what? Scientists with laser tanks have found a way to detect smaller amounts than a pound. It's called an ounce, up to 1 16th the size of a pound. And by looking at ounces, scientists have determined that the U.S. consumer eats an average of, are you ready? 1,312 ounces a year. That's 16 times worse. Now, to be fair, these nanoplastic detecting scientists actually detect more plastic, like I said, not just microplastics that have been smashed with tiny hammers into their component parts. But if that happened, they would detect it and it would show as whole new amounts of plastic. It is hardly 10 times the sheer tonnage of the microplastic. But here is the important part in all of that. It's not for me to argue with exactly how much more plastic is found. It's to emphasize that we all know what the effects of microplastics and nanoplastics are on the human body. And that effect is, of course, Unknown. Entirely unknown. It seems really scary. Who wants to eat plastic? No, Connor, put the giraffe down. Who wants to eat plastic? But it is unknown what the effects are. I certainly think there could be effects. You're probably thinking that too. But it's clear that headlines like plastic in water is 10 times worse, that is guaranteed to freak us out without really being certain what we should be freaked out about. I read an article recently in The New Yorker about all of this called How Plastics Are Poisoning Us. It's a very interesting article. New Yorker is usually interesting. It taught me about things I didn't know about small plastics and things called nurdles. But what it didn't prove was that plastics are poisoning us. There was an essay in the New York Times titled, Our Way of Life is Poisoning Us. It talks about all the plastic in the world, and it in no way proves, or really even attempts to prove, that our way of life is poisoning us. Not only is the headline crazily deceptive, come with me as we examine the methodology. It's kind of insane. Graph one. There is plastic in our bodies. It's in our lungs and in our bowels and in the blood that pulses through us. We can't see it and we can't feel it, but it's there. It is there in the water we drink and the food we eat and even in the air we breathe. We don't know yet what it's doing to us because we have only quite recently become aware of its presence. But since we have learned of it, it has become a source of profound and multifarious or perhaps multifarious cultural anxiety. This thing that we have no proof is harming us is very, very worrisome because it might be harming us. And then in graph two, watch what he does here. Here's, here's how it starts. Maybe it's nothing. Maybe it's fine. Maybe this jumble of fragments, bits of water bottles, tires, polystyrene packaging, microbeads from cosmetics is washing through us and causing no particular harm. But even if that's true, there would still remain the psychological impact of the knowledge that there is plastic in our flesh. What? You can't do that. 
You can't argue that you should be anxious. Wait, why should we be anxious? Because of all this anxiety we have. The SAS, his name is Mark O'Connell, and he's the author of Notes from the Apocalypse, A Personal Journey to the End of the World and Back, says the impact of the knowledge, so it goes, this is again, impact of the knowledge that there is plastic in our flesh, this knowledge registers in some vague way is apocalyptic. No, it's not vague. It's direct. It's literally the point of what you've written. Cut to the four horsemen of the apocalypse. War turns to famine and says, all this death, it's kind of like a plague. Anyway, of course, these plastics, the nanoplastics could be harmful. Sure. And I do say study that, but you know, it's extremely harmful. And this is even smaller than a nanoplastic. It's so small, it can't be picked up by any microscope. Worry, fear, anxiety, Bummers. These are the four horsemen of the doom apocalypse. You know who the heroes are in this whole story? It's the plastic purveyors. No, it's not the Time Magazine headline writers either. It's the scientists. One, talking about the measurement of a quarter of a million pieces of nanoplastic in a liter of water. Remember, that was the big headline, or one of the big headlines that didn't say 10 times worse. Quarter of a million pieces of nanoplastic in a liter of water. She's uh, Denise Hardesty, Australian government oceanographer who studies plastic waste. She says that total weight is equivalent to the weight of a single penny in the volume of two Olympic-sized swimming pools. I once swallowed a penny. I've never swallowed two Olympic-sized pools. That is 5 million liters of water or 5,000 years worth of consumption for the average human if they hit their water quota. I give special credit to the researchers of this study themselves, by the way. The AP says, quote, all four co-authors interviewed said they are cutting back on their bottled water use after they conducted the study. Mmm, telling. Is it? Cutting back? Do you think cancer researchers cut back on their cigarette consumption? Yes, pack a day, but now that I saw the effects on lungs, eh, just a couple after a meal and out back on research breaks. Here is one of the researchers with a actual laser beam of insight. I mean, whether we see it or not, it's out there. So it's better that we actually know how much is out there and what they are. Um, but I myself, as a scientist, I would want more data in terms of the toxicology study to actually know um, how harmful it would be to my own body. I raise a glass to you, Neijin Chen, and a glass of bottled water at that. Might as well throw a penny's worth of caution into the wind, which scientists say probably is also going to kill us. And that's it for today's show. The gist is produced by the Quaint Mallards. The Quaint Mallards are Corey Wara, gist producer, and Joel Patterson, gist senior producer. Michelle Pesca is in charge of special projects for Peachfish Productions. If you wish to advertise on the gist, go to advertisecast.com slash the gist. and thanks for listening. You mean I actually have freaking sharks with freaking laser beams attached to their freaking heads? And that's it for today's show. The juice, the juice. Oh, God, it's worth a squeeze.